the Empire Podcast this week, we welcome Natalie Dormer to deliver a propos for the final instalment of the Hunger Games saga and maybe tell us a little something about Game of Thrones while she's here. And we discuss the rudest film of the year, Gaspar Noé's Love, which is to genitalia what the Transformers franchise is to explosions. All that and more on the only movie podcast that ensures the odds are always in our favour by trying to avoid gladiatorial combat entirely. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Your regularly scheduled host, Chris Hewitt, is away on top secret business I cannot tell you anything about. It must remain under more wraps than a pashmina factory. Instead, today I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning that that phrase still makes no sense. First up is our resident ad for anger management, James Dyer. If he were thrown into the Hunger Games, he'd basically recreate Planet Hulk and destroy all comers. His gladiatorial name would be Maximus Casualtius. That's an astonishing graph of Latin that you have there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, I've been studying. I think I do very well in an office Hunger Games. I'm, I'm, I'm very <laughs> much in favour of this as a kind of an editorial device. Really? Yeah, it'd be good. You know, we put three reviews through, the features are done, and I kill the guy with the trident. <laughs> yeah, it actually sounds pretty much like your average Monday here. Then we also have uh, Soundtrackus Expertus, uh, Emma Thrower. But unlike Chris, I am not willing to take your self-proclaimed expertise on faith. Oh, no. I am going to test it. Okay? Ugh, okay. This is the Michael Giacchino film track quiz. I'm really, really Can you name the film? This. It'll be fine. Can you oh, name man. the film that the following tracks come from? Oh, he's got amazing names. He's got amazing names. He likes a pun. And he changes, and he he has variations on the same name in different. Okay. Okay. This is going to go very badly. Number one, Earthbound and Down. John Carter? No. Tomorrowland? No. No. The other space one. <laughs> wow, um, this is not going. Well. I'm going to say Star uh, Trek. Oh. Oh, oh my goodness, you're Star, right. For goodness sake, throw a Star <laughs> oh, Trek. The embarrassing. First one. I'm sorry. Okay, this next. Is really pr- this is pressure. This is pressure. I'm sorry. Next one. Uh, level playing field. I'm going to say Second Planet of the Apes. It's not, is it? It is. It is. Very well done. Yes. Excellent. And finally, Kremlin with anticipation. That would be Mission Impossible of the Ghost Protocol kind. That's correct. Well done. She Could really I just is. say there aren't enough puns in soundtrack titles these days, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I hugely applaud his efforts. He Ooh. is a one-man effort to restore the balance of the pun. Uh, so, well done both. Welcome. Hello. We're going to go straight into today's questions, which are, number one, at Podcast Film Chat asks, an appropriate name, unusual, Mr. and Mrs. Film Chat must be pride. <laughs> which films do you have to defend liking and which films do you have to defend not liking? A lot, I think, would be the answer for both. Really? This conversation is going to end really badly, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> In gladiatorial games and you killing a guy with a trident, probably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where to start with this. I'm, I'm routinely, I think Chris would say wrong about things in the office. I think I routinely off on one about something. And of course, I've forgotten all of them. But I will say that there was a particular point where Chris and I defended The Phantom Menace for, I would say, approximately 15 years, continuously and repeatedly to all comers. And then you'll remember this, Helen. We all went and we saw it when it was re-released in 3D. And obviously, we'd seen this numerous times. I mean, I went to see it in the cinema like five times when it came out. And uh, we went to see it in 3D. And then we came out and we all walked out. And there was kind of dead silence. And we all walked down the road to that weird little underground noodle bar. And we sat down there. And me and Chris were just like... It's not very good, oh God. And we spent the next two hours just, the the scales fell from our eyes and we finally saw it for what it was. It was like some illusion, some fey magic had been dispelled. Yeah, it's really bad. Really, really bad. I mean, I know that will come as a shock to many readers. No, it really was a shock to me because I'd always defended it. I was like, it's got the greatest lightsaber battle in the history of Star Wars. You know, there's so much great stuff in it. You know, it's brilliant. And then you're just like, oh, my God, Anakin screaming yippee and pod races and oh, God. Anyway, so So, that was the thing. Defended it for years, as did Chris. And now we know the truth. Now you see the error of your ways. Yes. I um, I constantly find myself having to defend films. I have a bit of a nickname amongst my friends. They call me Five Star Thrower, which isn't true, <laughs> but it's just because I like all the films everybody else hates. Right. So um, the last two years, my favourites have been Interstellar and Cloud Atlas, which I know are very divisive. I like Cloud Atlas. I'm with you on that one. Amazing. I gave Interstellar five stars. Well, I, I agree with it. You're both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if we're, I'd say recently, the one that I love that everybody hates is Chappie. Um, oh. I love 
I love Chappie. It will be in my top five of the year. And I can see you yeah. hating me. I mean, judging right you a little bit, yeah. you know. Chappie Four Stars? Chappie Four Stars, definitely. Oh God. <laughs> the thing with Chappie, it's not a bad film. It's just mired in deep mediocrity. It's just quite dull. And it was a vanity project to cast the Antwoord to sort of star in it when neither of them can, you know, act. I just thought they were, I thought they were perfect in it. I just think it works. For me, it works on every level. And I know I'm completely wrong in the minority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um,. I love this. I feel like it's one of those films that stops as its story starts. You know, you've got to know what your own story is, personally. I don't know. Anyway, I like The Fountain. So, um, oh, yes. Which caused one of the greatest schisms in Empire history. It did. This was a very famous one. Because who reviewed it first? Did Ian? Ian did it first? No, I reviewed it first. And you gave it? Four stars. And then Ian did it on DVD and he gave it? One star. Yes. But yeah, but we had a standoff about who'd write the In Cinemas review for quite some time. And it ended up that Mark, had, our then editor, had to go see and cast his vote and whoever he agreed with was going to write the review because both of us agreed there was no splitting the difference. It was, whatever it was, it was definitely not a three-star film. Nobody thought it was that. So everybody knew it had to go one way or other and we just couldn't figure out which way. So anyway. It's phenomenal. You were wrong, um, as indeed are you, but there we go. I agree with you and... I mean, because I can't go a podcast without mentioning Clint Mansell. It oh, has, God forbid. <laughs> it but has yes, the best score. It does. But I love that film as well. I think it's great. I also love AI. But I do think the Little White Lies list that says it's the best Spielberg. I mean, I love AI. I still have a lot of trouble with that. It's not even in the top 10 best Spielbergs. It might be in the top 10. I'm pretty sure it's in the top 10, but it's uh-huh. not number one. I'm not. I'm actually not a huge fan of AI. That said, I am a huge fan of Nuns on the Run, and I have to defend that quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> As well, you might. So you, also, Equilibrium. Chris and I talk about that a lot. It is a great film directed by Kurt Vimmer. Go and see it. That's genius. I have to defend that quite a bit. I wanted to give that four stars and was denied. Godfather Part Three. I really, really like The Godfather Part 3. I'm not saying it's better than the other two, but I think actually as a film, it's quite fun. I enjoy it. I like the way he says internationale mobiliare. <laughs> yeah, I, quite, I mean, admittedly, the part where Andy Garcia and Sophia Coppola are making, what is it, meatballs, pastry, sexy cooking. I forget what it is they're making, but that's the worst scene in history. Uh, but other than that, I do quite enjoy that film. Okay. I, I would defend that to a limited extent. Um, also Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is another film which is objectively terrible but no, I really like. I like that and I think it's I think it's very conscious of what it is and that's my excuse for liking it. Mm. Um, <laughs> Keanu Reeves is perhaps less conscious, but yes. Well, usually, but you know, we still love him. So. It's one of these funny things because I'm a fan of the book and obviously it just deviates wildly from the story of the book in terms of who Mina is and, and the reincarnation of what. Uh, but also the score, who is... and. Emma, you'll tell us the score is by. Um, yeah, someone. I'm gonna. I see. I'm only. I'm throwing it out because I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's like Vorshek Kila. I don't know. He's. Uh, ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's very good. It's very That's good. That's a properly Transylvanian sort of a name. Then. Yeah. It's, Apologies it's, if it's from a completely different part of the probably, world. He's probably yeah from Peckham or something. But. Uh, <laughs> but it sounds exotic and exciting. Okay, let's have a, a second quick question today because it's a, one that's very relevant to one of this week's films. At Mbar Films asks if you could split any movie into two parts what would it be, a la Hunger Games finale, etc. Um, of course, this is something that keeps happening with every young adult-focused franchise. The, the, the last film must appear in two parts, apparently. It, I blame Harry Potter, which actually had a better claim to it than most. Oh, it's David Yates' fault. There is absolutely no doubt in this. <laughs> Although, frankly, if we're going to get right back to it, you could argue it's Tarantino's I was about fault. to say Kill Bill, yeah. Because yeah. Kill Bill kind of started this trend, and that's a film that didn't need to be in two fucking parts. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, so, go on. What well, are your suggestions? Go for it. Emma. Um, yeah, I really struggle with this, actually. My my theory is that I'd like to see something where you get someone else's perspective. So not to give anything away whatsoever, but like I recently saw Room and it's from one per- it's from a small child's perspective. And I wish, you know, that if you'd seen it from the adult's perspective, it would have been completely different. So that's kind of my idea. I don't you, know. You I, thought we needed two films about depressing sexual no, slavery. I don't, <laughs> no, honestly, I can't think of anything that I would really like to see. Maybe for purely selfish reasons, Benjamin Button, because I'm intrigued as to how far Fincher could stretch a short story. <laughs> um, or so, yeah, I'm going to say Chappie. Oh, <laughs> Chappie in two parts? But I, I suppose know. at least that way you might have gotten to the good bit after the film ended. <laughs> it would have been two so. amazing films. <laughs> <laughs> I, the one that actually came to mind when I saw this was the season finale, the, the, the very season finale of Buffy, 
which I have always maintained needed to be twice as long to do justice to everything that happened in that. Anya, for example, I'm not going to say too much, but Anya, that needed more time. That needed a lot more time. It should have been twice as long. You are not wrong, actually. That episode, to me, felt very, if not rushed, he tried to do an awful lot in a very short runtime. And yes, it could have done with a little bit of... Obviously, you're stuck with network restrictions in that particular regard. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. Double episode, I uh, think, you know. That aside, though, my answer to this question is don't ever ever do it ever under any <laughs> circumstances ever do it it is the worst most self-indulgent thing a filmmaker can ever do and i appreciate it's not always the filmmakers this is a very very cynical cash grab thing and it, it drives me nuts it drove me nuts with harry potter because yes admittedly it's quite a weighty tome but 18 chapters of that are a tent in the woods do you know what i mean you could have mm. trimmed that back in a heartbeat but it's it's studios not willing to give up on huge cash cows that keep on giving. Do you know what I mean? And it's always the last one when they realise, oh, the well's about to dry up. We should stretch this out for another year. And it kind of, it drives me a bit nuts. So, you know, Deathly Hallows, obviously then they did it again with Breaking Dawn. And the result is always the same. So then you have two films, one of which is always really boring. So yes. it was Deathly Hallows part one. It's Breaking Dawn part one. It's all Hunger three of the Hobbit films. One. It's, uh, yeah, it's been interesting. Like, a Hobbit is a tiny, tiny book stretched out over three sprawling films and padded to make it stretch that runtime. Yeah. A little unnecessary, although I do, you know, quite enjoy them. Uh, Mockingjay, again, you've got part one of Mockingjay, and Emma, I know you're going to disagree with this. <laughs> I'm going to keep uh, quiet. Which is, you know, a little bit flat. Any film that can afford to have a cat batting at a spot of light on the wall for five minutes has a flabby runtime. <laughs> it's just not necessary. And then, what is it, next year we've got what, um, Allegiance, Allegiance becoming a Legion and Ascendant, isn't it? Which is the last yeah. divergent The Maze Runner's the only one that's not, that franchise is the only one that's not doing it. Not yet. Well... No, they've said not. The Scorch where's, where's, Trials followed by the Scorchia Trials well, before no, we, whatever we, his we name is. Had, yeah, we, we had him in the podcast. He, he, he assured us. He uh, promised mm-hmm, us. Yeah. We didn't get it in writing. So, yeah, well, that's it. It's just, I don't know. It just drives me absolutely nuts because it's just... And they say, oh, it's because the fans don't want it to end. Yes, yes. I think they'd like it to end better, I think, would be the way to do it. <laughs> so um, the only cynical. one I'm giving a free pass on this is Infinity War because obviously yeah. that's going to be split into two parts, but it's got Thanos in it. So it's allowed. And it's not based on a book, so it should... Well, technically it's based on a four-part comic series. This is true. The Infinity War. Well, actually, the Infinity Gauntlet, I think, is more what it's based on. The Infinity War is actually a separate thing. Yeah, they just like the name, I think. Yes. But that said, if we're talking... I mean, technically, Matrix 2 and 3 was one film split into two, Mm because shot back-to-back. That's the future 2 and 3, kind of, and that gets away with it. That's so so different. There are exceptions. Yeah, Yeah. but generally speaking, don't do it or you're going to hell. Fair enough. Uh, I might come back to this in about three or four weeks because I have seen a film recently that I think could somewhat benefit from okay. this, but we'll discuss. Was it Gaspar Noé's Love? <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, now let's turn the searing lens of our attention away from the poor, defenceless two-part finales to the trembling creatures of this week's movie news. So, what do we think about this week's news? They're making a Tetris movie. Yeah, now, I'll be honest, I'm not a big gamer, but as I understand it, Tetris involves moving some blocks around to make bigger blocks. Is that correct? Yes, attack the blocks is what this is going to be called. Right. And uh, as someone on Twitter yesterday was pointing out, if this all comes together, then it will instantly fall apart. Yeah. So uh, how, how does that work? I hope they have the sequence that was that famous YouTube clip where people were playing Tetris with lights on the sides of a building. Oh, yeah. That's my favourite thing about Tetris. Uh, That and the music. No, to be fair, this isn't actually going to be about self-aware blocks falling down (laughs) and holding hands and disappearing. It is, in fact, going to be the sort of social network-esque telling of uh, the creator of Tetris, whose name eludes me at the moment. But he he sort of strove for years, I think, to get recognition as the creator of the game. So it's going to be a bit bit of behind-the-scenes game creatoredom. Well, Um, that's potentially more interesting. You know, sort of <laughs> than blocks falling. Than yeah, blocks falling yeah. from it's the not sky. Pixels Part Two. No. <laughs> sure. Yes, I think it's more in the vein, maybe of I don't know, a King of Kong, or what was that Greg Kinnear one about windshield wipers? I may have missed that. Oh well, it was a fascinating story. It sounds it uh, so fascinating. I can't remember the name. In fact, um, tell me about Memento. Oh no, you have to come on. Well, but tell us about it backwards. <laughs> the film's terrible. The, the new film will, is terrible. <laughs> this is you going backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It never happened. I, I hope it goes the same way as, not to be harsh, but I hope it goes the same way as the the Raid remake that's just disintegrated a la Tetris blocks and, you know, it whole... So if somebody wants to remake Memento... They do. The because... universally acclaimed and very well-loved film by one of people's favourite filmmakers yeah. of the modern era. Because they're absolutely mental. I mean, it does somewhat seem that that may not be unfair. Who is behind this? 
we need to hold Ambi Pictures accountable for this because the film's only 15 years old. One of their guys says, uh, quote, unquote, people who've seen Memento 10 times still feel they need to see it one more time. This is a quality that we feel really supports and justifies a remake. Hmm. <laughs> what, you know, when the wow. other one's out there, available, still incredible. I think this is a great idea. I also think they should split it into two parts. <laughs> uh, I think that would really benefit the story. Because Guy Pearce tweeted this week, didn't he? And he, um, it was a picture of him with all of, you know, with all the, the tattoos all over him and just sort of saying, this is great. I hope I get to play Sammy this time around. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you do a really meta remake like that, you know, have uh, Guy Pearce and just swap roles. It's an oddity, isn't it? Because, you know, it was a relatively sort of low-key release, Very which was critically so, yeah. acclaimed. It's not what I would call a massive money spinner. No. Uh, it's not, dare I say, a particularly mainstream picture that's going to lend itself to box office glory. So why, why? do it? Yeah, 15 um, years. It seems it see, it does seem that the, the shelf life of movies before they get remade is just getting shorter and shorter and yeah. shorter to the point where you, why don't we just do one every year? Do you know I mean? Make it like FIFA on the Xbox. You know? <laughs> Avengers, Avengers remake, Avengers remake too. Well, having said that, they are already doing that with Spider-Man. So. Yes, well, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of much. Is there anything to be said for the idea of remaking Memento? I mean, I've, I, I haven't actually wa- ever watched it, you know, in the quote-unquote right order the real cut that's, mm. that's, um, that's on the DVD. Is that, that's worse, isn't it? That's not well, yeah, it takes away the USP of the film a little yeah. bit. Like the the chronological muddling is part of its charm in the same yeah. way with Pulp Fiction you know it's it's the core of the film and I think you know watching it in chronological order you've just got a well acted but fairly standard thriller so you yeah. need to stick with the device yeah. at least somewhat or call it something else yeah why not just call it something else and also aren't we a little bit sick of the whole I mean this is a very rare disorder I think that you lose the ability to create yeah. anterograded amnesia indeed so so I feel like it's quite well represented in cinema uh, since Memento and indeed in TV and so on. So there's actually a, there's actually a Bollywood version. Have you guys seen the trailer? No, no, it's but amazing. I now must find this. It's incredible. Uh, I've not seen the film and I feel like I have to. But um, someone on Twitter I saw had reacted and they posted this trailer. Apparently, there's actually two remakes out there. There's another version somewhere. I want to say it's Scandinavian, but I think that's completely wrong. But look up the Bollywood trailer because it See, looks incredible. Bollywood remakes can never measure up to the Bollywood version of 24, which is the greatest <laughs> thing in the world with Anil Kapoor as Jack Bauer. Amazing. Incredible. It's just phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, find it. Well, there we go. This is our regularly scheduled Bollywood advert. Ben Wheatley is making a film, um, which is, you know, basically he's always making a film. He's always got about six films queued up behind that film, it seems. Uh, But he is apparently looking at another remake, but this one's a bit more cause for happiness, I think. He's looking at remaking Wages of Fear which is pretty freaking exciting, I think. Yeah, this is this is normal, because that's something I would genuinely like to see that remade. Uh, yeah. And I think Ben Wheatley would do a phenomenal job of that. I haven't seen it in absolutely ages. It's, uh, it's 1953, isn't it? And it, uh, this is the one with the the men delivering... Nitroglycerin, because, you know, yeah. Truckloads of nitroglycerin along insanely dangerous roads yeah. in South America. So literally cliffhanging sort of stuff, but cliffhanging with a truck full of dynamite. The word remake doesn't actually scare me when it comes to Ben Wheatley. Yeah. I'd actually let him have a crack at Memento Mark II. <laughs> that would be twisted. But, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, obviously this is not the first time that they've tried to do this. I'm freaking tried to do it in 77 with Sorcerer, <laughs> to greater and lesser extent, because it came up around the same time as Star Wars uh, and died an uh, ignominious death. But yeah, I mean, incredibly tense film, incredibly tense. I mean, it's one of those real sort of butt clenchers. So yeah, I don't know. I, what do you think he'll do with it? How do you think he'll... What, what will be the weekly touch? It'll be more twisted, is my guess. You know, he's he's a lovely man, but his films are, you know... Super dark. Super dark. <laughs> super, super dark. Darker than people blowing up on windy roads. Yes. <laughs> Darker even Darker than that. Darker even than that. Yes. But but very excited about this one. So uh, knowing Ben Wheatley, that'll be out in, in a couple of weeks. High Rise is obviously the next one from him, which I think is out here at the beginning of March. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've already seen it's really good. Spoiler. There's actually some news here coming up to warm my heart, but I'm going to leave that till the end because first we have to deal with Ridley Scott's Alien Colon Covenant. A.K.A. Prometheus 2. A.K.A. Prometheus 2. Yeah. So he's saying that this one is going to be more towards the genesis of the alien, and that's why it's got this title, correct? 
Yes. Well, this this was kind of it was a bit of an offhand comment. He was just talking about the film and his scheduling, and then he just sort of dropped. Oh, by the way, it's going to be called this. And then suddenly everyone jumped on it and they released a like an ident yeah. like a title card for it. With, so it is the official thing because there's a font and everything. <laughs> um, I'm not happy. Were and you- the reason I'm not happy is I, I actually, one of the few people, I defended Prometheus to the hill actually when that came out because I really enjoyed it. Wow. So we should have talked about that earlier. We really should have. Um, but I liked it as an independent entity. I liked it as a work of hard sci-fi. I liked it as, you know, a, a sort of slightly weird alien telling of Charlie Theron being run over by a giant donut. But uh, I didn't like when it crossed over into the alien mythology. I'm very, very protective of the alien mythology. Aliens is my favourite film of all time. And when it started to get into that territory, I was like, okay, I'm not listening, not listening, la la la, fingers in my ears, and let's enjoy it for what it is. Whereas with this title, it makes me feel that he's going, as he said, much deeper into what ties it to that franchise. And no, please don't. Prequels are bad. Demystifying mythologies is bad. Please, please leave it alone. Okay. That said, he's really forgotten the film would be brilliant. But... um, (laughs) But I would rather... Yes, oh, okay, fine. Uh, But nevertheless, I I, know it'll be good. I'm looking forward to it, but I would have rather it had, you know, not gone in this direction. It's uh, it's a messy old thing over there with Fox. Well, we don't really know what's going on. Obviously, my main man, Neil Blomkamp, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on with him and his his alien stuff. It's all, it's interesting because I guess it is all going to be tied up now, but I wouldn't be surprised if... Oh my God, Chappie's going to be an alien covenant. Chappie in space. (laughs) I, I think we're jumping ahead of ourselves here, but <laughs> but his Alien Five or whatever yeah. it's called is basically just been kicked into touch at this point, and it's just down the line for whenever. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be post this, post whatever he does next, because he's got to fill his time with something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, who knows when, when we'll see that one? I do wonder whether that's it's going to be slightly problematic for Ridley because the concept art for that and the idea of Blomkamp saying just looks so incredible like you you thought I must see this film I must see this film and it's almost like anything that Ridley now does with Alien Covenant isn't going to measure up to the promise of Blomkamp's Alien which is although it was very vague about the timeline and where it was going to fit in and indeed what it was going to be about Uh, but yeah that that art really sort of kindled my imagination yeah will we once again see Michael Fassbender's severed head who knows or dares to dream (laughs) a very quick mention now uh, The Dark Tower that is something Stephen King's The Dark Tower has been in development for approximately six billion years at this point uh, longer than Jurassic Park Mm. uh, for those keeping count and Matthew McConaughey is now being talked up for the lead role now visually that's brilliant i would imagine the budget's just shot up a little bit a bit uh what do we think of that i uh, my secret shame is i've never read the dark tower chris ah. bangs on about this endlessly as it is stephen king's magnum opus if you read nothing else by stephen king you must read the dark tower and i've not read the dark tower but it looks great i'm sure it's very good uh i don't <laughs> know who he's going to play and even if i did know it wouldn't mean anything to me but I'm pleased they're doing this or not doing it because is it ever actually going to happen? Because Ron Howard has been talking about this for, I believe, at last count, 87 years mm-hmm. um, and is no closer to being made. It strikes me as something that screams to be a seven-season HBO saga uh, and I can't imagine anyone trying to do it another way. Yeah. So I assume he's playing Roland a.k.a. the gunslinger, I guess. Yeah, it's one of these interesting things, isn't it? By getting a big star like that, do you open up a whole lot of budgetary options or do you spend half your budget in one fell swoop? It kind of goes either way. I guess it gives it legitimacy and potentially opens up an audience that Mm. might otherwise not have watched it. And equally, though, he's an Oscar winner, therefore it's going to cost them cash to get him. But I think everything's going to be all right, all right. (laughs) Right. <laughs> and this has still got a companion TV series anyway, which is still in development. So. Right. So are they still planning to go between movies and TV, which was the, the plan a few years ago when I think Javier Bardem was aboard yep. at one point? Yeah. Um, so it's still they're still planning to do the double. Yeah, they're doing the double. Wow. I, see, I'm still mourning it. I wanted it. I want <laughs> oh. it. Bring it back. It Bring back. it back. Yeah, I just that, and I'd like to see another another pass at the stand. To be honest, because I'm one of the very few defenders of the the, the TV miniseries of the stand, which I really enjoyed. Mm. Uh, I'd like to see that done. I don't want to say properly, but I'd like to see that done properly. Yeah, properly um, is the word. And it's another one. Like the t the the two part it is flawed in many ways but Tim Curry is the definitive Pennywise so yes you could do the book better you could adapt it better but could you do the clown better and I'm going to say no Mm. they should do Salem's Lot instead Salem's Lot has not been done well and it is possibly my favourite book of his so 
That's yeah, I've seen a couple of the Salem's lots. I've never really been... No. No. Not blown away. No. No. So finally, let's end with with some potentially good news. Fast and Furious is now going to be <laughs> a shared universe. The yep. FNFCU. The FNFCU. They're doing spin-offs from Fast and Furious. It's only a matter of time, wasn't it? It was only a matter of time. Talk specifics, Helen. What are they going to do? Who knows, James? They don't know. They're talking about a Luke Hobbs spin-off, which is more The Rock, which is good. I would yeah. watch that. They're they're literally talking about Vin, young Vin Diesel and his dad building his car <laughs> together. Although that might be just, you know, our James White making up stories. Um, I mean, they haven't gotten into specifics yet. But, you know, I think anything more that brings us that level of brilliant stupidity is surely a good thing. I think they should release it as sort of small form uh, sort of uh, full form 15 minute TV episodes and then he could say I live my life a quarter hour at a time oh that's very good (laughs) I would like to see a sort of uh, Muppet Babies version of Fast and Furious (laughs) where they all drive around in little little scooter cars uh, and or play with micro machines yes can we talk to Universal about I this, think we please. should talk to Universal about that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether to be overjoyed by this or dismayed. I can't <laughs> tell because The Fast and Furious doesn't exist in this reality. This is a, uh, a film franchise which has sort of transcended the boundaries of space and time to become something ethereal and I don't understand it. Uh, I know it's amazing, I just don't really get why. Um, and so this is the worst idea in the world. It shouldn't work, but it is invariably going, be going to be brilliant and work on every level <laughs> because the laws of physics do not apply to this franchise. It's going to make all of the money. It's going to make more, all the money. More money. They've, more, more all of the money. More all of the money. They've made so much money. Yeah. And there's so many characters. They honestly just have so much they can choose from. I mean, who, who do you want to see spun off? Are you thinking the Roman comedy spin off? <gasps> oh my gosh, Tej and Roman. Oh. Tej and Roman, the bromance. Absolutely. Like a True Detective season three style. <laughs> thing that has yeah that's that has my, to happen that's my first choice how sure. about we have one where Jason Statham's character escapes again mm-hmm. right and and meets up with Vin Diesel again and they play the they spend the entire film trying to learn how to play chicken <laughs> which they spectacularly failed to do during Fast and Furious 7 I think a <laughs> hospital drama that takes place during the time that Luke Hobbs is in a cast in his room <laughs> and he's a supporting character and occasionally flexes his muscles and bursts his cast to much to General Howard. so it's the story of the nurse who has to keep reapplying yeah. his cast because yeah. he keeps accidentally flexing and breaking it yeah so are you thinking love story or more of like a gritty indie Oscar grabber? It could go either way. Oh and occasionally goodness. he pulls drones out of the sky and rips miniguns out of things. and <laughs> Just out of his pocket. Yeah, crashes trucks into helicopters, whatever he does. Yeah. This, I mean, actually it has potential. It does. Oscars 2017. I see it happening. Anywho. <laughs> Universal, call us. Okay, so that's it for this week's news, I think. Time now for this week's guest. Natalie Dormer appeared in Captain America, the first Avenger, in Rush and the Riot Club, but she really caught audiences' attention in Game of Thrones as the politically adept Marguerite Terrell. Now she's reprising her role in The Hunger Games as propaganda filmmaker Cressida. Fun fact, Dormer actually ran the London Marathon in a very respectable time a couple of years ago. Does this mean she's in with a hope of surviving both The Hunger Games and the Game of Thrones. Phil spoke to her recently to find out. Natalie Dormer, welcome to the Empire Podcast. I think this is your first visit to the pod booth. I think it is. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in. We're here to talk about Mockingjay Part 2, which I have not seen. Have you seen it? I have seen it, yes. Is it good? It's very good. I was actually really stoked to see it anyway but it's funny when you've been in a movie people think how can you be surprised at what you saw but I genuinely was it's epic it's epic it Mm. looks epic from the trailer and I was at Comic-Con as well so I got to see it all kind of unfolding early on I mean Comic-Con is just a phenomenon in and of itself the fan you get to see the full level of support and knowledge of the fans it's pretty incredible let's talk about Cressida Let's talk about Cressida. Your character, she's a filmmaker, I guess, turned gorilla in this scenario. Don't she's sh- a genuine revolutionary, yeah. She, uh, she, but she believes in overthrowing snow. I have no idea what happens to her at the end. I'm not sure if she lives or dies. If she were to live, hypothetically, would she get back into the filmmaking business? And what kind of movies would she be making? 
Yeah, I mean, were she to live, she definitely would continue making documentary filmmaking. She, you know, in the field, kind of war correspondent turned, I don't know what she'd end up doing, but continuing doing the job. It's a gift as an actor when you get to play someone who is defined by their passion and their profession, because it really gives you, you know exactly where to start from. Obviously, it's a joy to have been able to pay tribute to all the directors that I've seen over the years who think visually, who have an instinct to think like that within a frame yes. and package something like that. I was able to, like, you know, tip the cap a bit and sort Me of people too. that think like that. Any particular people that there was... No, it's an amalgamation of kind of... I'm afraid it's not an inspiration by one person. I mean, I'm with a director, so I know what it's like to be around someone who thinks it visually because actors kind of think more emotionally, instinctually. But, you know, I've been working for a decade now and I've worked with a lot of incredible directors. But also what I found fascinating about Cressida is you just turn on the news, the kind of package of, you know, as I said, war correspondent kind of footage she's editing and dealing with is what you kind of see from Reuters or the BBC when they're covering what's going on at the moment in our turbulent world. It's kind of those kind of images that you see on our screen at the moment are exactly... I was kind of inspired by the news generally, to be honest. So she's not going to sort of do the big Hollywood blockbuster I don't think route. she's going to go off and make a Hollywood rom-com <laughs> for Pan Am. I think she's going to go back and make those really important documentaries that need to be made. Yes. I think Pan Am's going to need some rom-coms by the end of this. Do you not? <laughs> Maybe that's where, yeah. Definitely. Like Sullivan's Travel Star. She'll learn that she needs to pass on the gift of laughter. Like you've had an incredible few years in terms of just working really, really hard. You did, obviously, season four of Game of Thrones mm. and then you flew to Atlanta and you were training for the marathon, mm. which isn't work, but it kind of is. Mm-hmm. And then you came back and did season five of... You didn't really no, stop. No, I haven't really stopped. Did you have any time off at all in that stretch? No. Went straight on from Game of Thrones and then went on to do The Scandalous Lady W for the BBC. You know, also just finished The Forest, this amazing psychological horror movie that I've just spent a, load, a few months on. And Patient Zero as well with Matt Smith. Very happy. And Stanley Tucci again, the wonderful Stanley Tucci here in Shepparton. So no, you're quite right and fitted in a bit of elementary in and amongst all that as well. So uh, there's, it has been a mad pack sort of two and a half, three years. But it's been an extraordinary journey and I'm really enjoying it, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm building up the air miles, which is always good. Are you? <laughs> you? I always seem to be in an airport. But other than that, it's all good. I wanted to ask you about Stanley Tucci a bit later. Patient Zero was another one. You had, I think you had three movies in San Diego this summer didn't you yeah. well not three movies we had Game of Thrones three projects three projects yeah. well f- and, and yeah I did. it was three yes and Patient Zero which gives us Stanley Tucci as a zombie undead as of- the leader of the infected would be the correct term no it's Sorry. an again it's that Mike Lee the writer got this interesting take on the zombie phenomenon it's they're not zombies insofar as they never died they're infected I found the concept kind of interesting curious because Mike had this idea he actually got the idea from he was visiting Comic Con as a fan uh, this is the writer of Patient yeah. Zero and he saw a couple of guys dressed up as zombies because you know everyone goes to Comic Con dressed up just having like a cigarette a crafty cigarette at the back of the conference centre and this got him thinking about what if the undead, the infected, were kind of had more kind of human traits? What if they were just the next evolution of human beings? This sort of heightened, stressful state that we all live in at the moment because of 24-hour society and technology always bombarding us, that that sort of adrenaline was harnessed by a virus that kind of right. made you extra aggressive and hyper strong. Imagine yourself in a lot of Red Bull and then just add water. You know, every generation has a monster to cathartically vent whatever issues they're mm-hmm. going through at the time you know, whether it's zombies or, you know, the bogeyman or vampires or whatever, whatever you want to do. I was intrigued. I assume Stanley was as well by the idea of the infected being like relevant monster for our hyper technologicalized social media generation. I can't imagine Stanley Tucci on Red Bull. That's an image. Because <laughs> he, I mean, he seems such a calm guy. A, a gentle red wine or something, perhaps. But <laughs> he is a dude. We kind of worship him in these parts. He's a great man. Do you have any Stanley Tucci trivia that you can share in part that people don't know about him? Most people probably don't realise he's a really incredible cook. Uh, He's actually brought out an Italian cooking book in the last year. I think it was only released in America. I don't know if it was released here as well. He's very good at giving you recipe tips for good pasta sauces. I had the benefit of his insight and culinary skills. (laughs) Do you feel under pressure to have made his recipes when you turn up on (laughs) set? I'm avoiding him. Yeah, I need to have made his... 
<laughs> I can't talk to Stanley. I haven't done his lasagna yet. <laughs> exactly. That's a lot of pressure. Well, what's it like seeing your characters? I mean, this would apply to Marjorie as well, obviously. Yeah, it's a weird sensation when you see some. And what always fascinates me is the detail that the fans go into when you get up close to them to, you know, give them a hug and a kiss or whatever, and you see the intricate details. A couple of fans came up to me at Comic Con. It's sort of like the color of the beading on the dresses or the metalwork on the Terrell roses. Like they've got it. Like the hours of work that have gone in. I mean. No one has come up to me with a half-shaved head yet. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> I will definitely extend their hand and congratulate if anyone does that. Your wedding dress in Game of Thrones, I, th- I believe, took 200 person hours. So I'm assuming that's, even for Comic-Con, that's probably just Just a l- out one of reach. step too far. But not by much, I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> Can you do the Mockingjay whistle? No. Um, I always do it out of tune. Liam, I'm scared of whistling into the mic. Is Liam good at it? No, I, they say that it all ends up being the X-Files tune. Yeah. That's it. That's the one. I, don't, I was kind of all right. Absolutely. What was your last day on set of this one like? There was a lot of emotion, obviously, for, for Jennifer, but she's been in the franchise a, a bit longer. Yeah, it was sad because we lost people as we went along. What happens is the capital kind of turns into an arena itself and people sort of like get picked off one by one. Every couple of weeks, someone else would be dying. It was traumatic stuff. My last day was actually within the last week. I was pretty right up there to the last hurdle. We were in Berlin at the time and shooting was so crazy. They had to finish. They had so much to do in the last week. It's kind of like, yeah, bye now. We love you because, you know, they just had to get onto the next scene, which was probably the best way to do it, actually, because it meant that I didn't have time to be emotional. Is there something on Game of Thrones where people have their last day when they die and leave the show, where it's a bit like... You know, it's our last meal for people. I guess people die in bulk almost in Game of Thrones, don't they? Yeah, to... again, it's kind of an occupational hazard being on Game of Thrones. You know, you're going to die how or when or... It's an interesting one. I think when we all get the scripts at the beginning of the season, we all kind of like flick through to find out how people go and when they go because we're not really privy to that till really to the last minute because the creators want to like keep it a secret. So, But I like to not read the scripts of Game of Thrones. I like to watch it as a fan at home. For the last couple of seasons, I've done this thing where I have... I haven't read anyone else's storyline other than like the King's Landing storyline. I don't actually know what's going on elsewhere so that I can enjoy the show like everybody else as a fan. Do you watch it at exactly the same time? Yeah, yeah, when I it do. Airs on... yeah, I watch it when it airs, exactly, yeah. That's how I discovered the series. I watched the first series as a punter because I didn't join until second year. I really enjoy just sitting down and, you know, the music comes on and I'm, I'm excited. I love watching it just like everybody else does, to be honest. Perfect. Well, that opens a whole new avenue of questions to me. Do you think Jon Snow is still alive? I think Jon Snow died. He's definitely dead. There's a lot of magic in Westeros. If he was going to come back, I would have no idea how that would happen because I haven't read the scripts. And you haven't seen Kit lately. And I haven't seen Kit lately. (laughs) Fair enough. Tell me about the final part of Mockingjay because the first of the two felt like it was the politics of propaganda it explored and the groundswell of this rebellion and here it's going to explode. Did Francis Lawrence, the director, talk to you about it as a war movie or how did he kind of couch it? I mean, I think it naturally, the books, Susan Collins's books naturally evolve in that way. That's what I love about the book so much. She's always been very clear in the interviews that she's done in the past that she didn't want to shy away from the consequences of war. When you turn on the TV now and see what is happening with refugees being displaced, there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn and Suzanne was always very clever in the novels in addressing those themes. And the producers and Francis Lawrence with and us as a cast really wanted to honour the source material. It's a civil war movie, it is. It's about a rebellion and a revolution. And it's also about the horrific things that a leader is willing to do to his people to yeah. maintain power and order. That's unfortunately all too prevalent in our modern world right now. Yes, it's a fantastic popcorn movie and it's a great entertainment level. Everyone's going to go and have a really great time and you know see what finally happens in the love triangle. That is the beauty and the intelligence and the soul of the Hunger Games saga as well is that it also has modern, important themes for a young audience to help them process, which I think can only be a good thing. Definitely. I mean, it's thinky in that sense. Yeah. But with lots of explosions and lots of yeah. bigger traps. I mean, there's some really interesting, I can't give stuff away, but there's some interesting choices with certain characters made about their attitude towards sacrifices that you make for the greater good. It's like, where is the line on what is acceptable in the context of war? People change under duress. It's really interesting to watch characters that an audience has watched and loved and grown for films and God knows how many years and watch the interesting choices that they make that might at first seem out of character. So there's a lot of drama in there as well as the explosions and all the bells and whistles. 
France as well. Let me ask you a little bit more about the White House Correspondents' Dinner that you went to. I just wondered, you went with... Um, I went with Nikolai. Nikolai yeah. Costa-Wilder. Obviously, there's a lot of politicians who love the shows that you're in, but you love Veep, don't you? I and do I love wondered Veep. if, as a fan of Veep, you found the whole thing kind of difficult. I was like starstruck the other way around. Yeah. Is that what you mean? No, I, well, I mean, obviously they're famous politicians, but when you watch Veep, I can't imagine you could walk into that environment and not look for like the intrinsic comedy of some of the Of the staff. situation. Yeah, almost. Yeah, I mean, everything's a bit absurd, isn't it? It's true that all the guys on Capitol Hill were massive Game of Thrones fans. I know that some of the higher echelons in our political landscape really love the show as well. I mean, it's all about power play, isn't it? Dirty dealings, power corrupts. I think they get a kick out of it, absolutely. I mean, I love Veep. I think that's such a, it's great, you know, also part of the HBO family. I love that show. I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a comedy genius. I really do. She's amazing. It was a surreal experience, actually, if that's what you're asking me. It was a bit surreal. I think Nicola and I found it both a bit surreal. Do the questions of the fans divide on bipartisan lines? No, I think I'm sure all those guys, you know, who in 10 Downing Street or in the White House wouldn't like a dragon at their beck and call, basically. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn, I think, would be tough on that. He wouldn't want to use the dragon. That's the whole point. He He wouldn't want to use the dragon. That would be his stance, I'm sure. Before I wrap up, I have to ask a slightly obscure one. Private Lorraine. Oh, yeah. I mean, Private Lorraine and Captain America, the first Avenger. Mm. First of all, you've been in a Marvel movie already, Mm. but that doesn't necessarily count you out of other Marvel movies, does it? There has been precedent on this one. Yeah, right. The conspiracy kind of reasoning about how I could possibly play a Marvel character in the future. Yeah, you could just be one. Of course I could. Yeah, 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 of course I could. Are you going to? Not yet to my knowledge. Did you see the scuttlebutt about Madame Hydra, that, that she may have been part of the Hydra machinery? Oh, no, I didn't see that. That was the rumour that she was an evil super genius potentially behind the scenes. Oh, great. Love it, evil super genius, like uh, AKA Moriarty. It's all fun. The landscape that Marvel have created and DC as well, just like the Hunger Games and Game of Thrones, it's all immersive for the fans. It's really extraordinary, all the interconnecting ensembles that can happen now. I love the way television and film is thinking really big these days, but importantly, giving the women long overdue roles they need, that they can match the men, that they're 50% of the audience and that they should be 50% of the protagonists as well. Those guys who are doing all those superhero movies are they're leading the way in gender equality at last so I'm a massive fan of them doing so great stuff thank you so much for joining us Natalie nice to meet you I like Natalie Dormer this doesn't surprise me yeah (laughs) she's very good Marjorie Tyrell is awesome yeah, she is. I do I do think she's in with a shot of a better shot than most of surviving mm. most of Game of Thrones. She may not be standing at the end. She's having a bad time at the moment, let's be honest. Well, yeah, who isn't? Mm, yeah, it's a Game of Thrones. Enough. No spoilers here. Okay, uh, it's time now, I think, for movie reviews. Uh, so we'll start with the big one, which is the final instalment of the Hunger Games series. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence's Katniss is in a, and this isn't a spoiler, it's the end of, of the series, it's a final desperate struggle against Donald Sutherland's President Snow and the capital itself. What did we make of this? The thing is, as I was saying earlier, Mockingjay Part 1 is dreadful because not enough happens and it's extraordinarily tedious. See cat, wall, light, batting. This one, however, I think works on a much more emotional level. The, the issue I've always had with this franchise is it, it's incredibly po-faced. There's not a single smile, I think, in any of the films. Everyone is so bloody miserable. Yes, you're in an arena. Yes, you have to kill each other. For God's sake, smile. It's just, just please, just a gr- anything, just a smirk, something. And, you know, poor, poor Jennifer Lawrence just sort of scowls her way through this. To be fair to her, it is kind of a meditation on sort of the emotional breakdown of a person. And she does fall apart as this goes on, as they sort of heap trauma after trauma on her. I mean, it really is quite unpleasant. But And I don't want to say too much, because obviously there'll be a lot of people who haven't read the books, but the books unfold in a very specific way, which this is very true to, and mm-hmm. I applaud that, because I thought they might go in a different direction, because it's quite dark. My concern is, there's a little bit of a, a development towards the end, I thought it was overly telegraphed. I thought due to partly due to casting and partly due to the performance associated with the role this is all very cryptic and means nothing to anyone who hasn't seen it but when you've seen it you'll understand I thought it telegraphed a very surprising moment which I thought shouldn't have been telegraphed but that aside I mean if you look at the format of this so you've got the first Hunger Games which is gladiatorial combat you've got the second Hunger Games which is let's be honest the first Hunger Games with added monkeys Uh, and then you've got uh, Mockingjay which is Hunger Games but with less fun and this is that again, you know, there are traps, there's an arena, but the arena this time is the capital there. You know, it's the final push to unseat President Snow, to liberate Panem from his uh, despotic rule. Uh, but 
as you do, knowing that the you know the District Thirteen are going to invade the capital, he sets the game makers on them and sets fiendish traps all around the city, not worrying about any collateral damage. And there's some cool stuff. There's like a, a sort of an oil slick killer thing which has tripwires in it, which is peculiar. Sentry guns, mines, crazy eyeless liquor monsters from Resident Evil which turn up at one yeah. point which was unexpected although that's one of the best sequences in the film there's a big uh, showdown in the sewers which I thought was really tense very well yeah, shot yeah. it turns into a horror movie it, for yeah, very much so minutes, it though. felt like very influenced by um, uh, uh, by The Descent yeah. actually it had a lot of that in it a lot of that in its DNA um, but yeah I mean it's, it's, a, it's a really solid film does it justify again being the second half of what could easily have been put no in no way. I think Mockingjay as a single film would have been quite a strong entry in the series. Uh, I think as it stands, you've got one slightly lackluster entry and then this one, which has the emotional punch to it. But generally speaking, if you've enjoyed them so far, I think you'll love this one. Emma, you think this is the greatest thing ever made, don't you? The, no, that's not true. Is it better than <laughs> Chappie? The whole two-part argument is a tough one. I guess I've seen part one so many times I can't imagine it any other way. Mm-hmm. That's, but that's just... That's just personal. Uh, but it does mean that we technically get to see more of Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is yeah. never a bad thing. Yes. However, it doesn't spoil anything, but it is very... It's handled very sensitively, but you can you can tell, even as someone who hasn't read the books like myself, you can tell where certain scenes may have been given to somebody else. But I think, all in all, they, they handle that really nicely. Um, and yeah, agreeing with James, it it does feel quite constrained by the book, again, as someone who hasn't read it. And you can tell where they're trying to be very true to it and that will appease fans, obviously. Um, but yeah, a couple of emotional blows just don't quite sit right. I feel like they were they were brushed over a little bit, which I maybe I just wanted to really cry my eyes out. No, I would agree with that. And I think it's a fault of the book. Uh, there's one death in particular that should hit you like a train mm-hmm. and it doesn't. And I think it's a death that shouldn't happen, yes. narratively speaking, but it does, and if it does, it has to hit you hard, and I don't think it hits you quite hard enough. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I think also the supporting characters don't have a lot to do, which I think is a real shame in this. I think especially Sam Claflin's Finnick could have had an awful lot more screen time, could have really developed that character, because he kind of hops in and out, and when he's there, he's great. Yeah, uh, in, and particularly in that sewer sequence, he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't have a lot to do. Natalie Dormer, again, isn't properly utilised. Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously, there are logistical reasons, but I would like to have seen more of him. You know, if felt like it, it falls again a lot to Jennifer Lawrence and to uh, Josh Hutchison. Josh Hutchison, that's right Peter, to kind of carry a lot of this. And I think the love triangle thing which they set up so painstakingly in this, which was never really the crux of the story, I think is again clumsily mishandled because they telegraph that again by, shall we say, negatively influencing one of the characters' backstories by, by having them make questionable decisions, just so that you will go with her when she makes the wrong decision at the end. You, you're You're very much... You team can't the say other it. one. Yes, I'm you? team the other one. <laughs> okay. I feel betrayed. But it is. I mean, it's much more action packed. I think it's fair to say than certainly the, than the last one. Um, and it does find time for those emotional scenes, particularly between Katniss and Peter, who is trying to overcome. If you've seen the last film, his programming, where he was programmed to hate and to kill Katniss, and he's basically trying to fight his way back from that, which isn't kind of an interesting character beat for him. I think. I, I think all the acting is great, as you'd expect of this this cast. But I'd agree. I mean, there's people who are definitely underserved in terms of screen time and script time um, for sure but still we liked it we gave it four stars we did so so that is a recommendation very so much a recommendation if you're a Hunger Games fan you're going to be very happy I think by the by the end of this instalment so next up we have Gaspar Noe's fully frontal no boobs barred penis filled 3D <laughs> extravaganza love and I just know that Chris is upset not to be here to talk <laughs> about this one so you're just going to have to do your best so Helen yeah. to, be, to be clear you've seen Gaspar Noe's Cockapalooza in 3D. I have. Uh, tell us, what was your initial experience of watching this? <laughs> My initial experience is that the opening scene is the most explicit thing I've ever seen on, on a cinema screen. Please describe the scene to our readers. Um, I mean, this is a, you know, not quite a family podcast, but, you know, uh, the, the, the opening scene has a, a man and a woman on a bed together um, with their hands engaged with each other. Playing with the, each other, uh, if you will. Uh, yes, vigorously. Right, okay. Vigorous fiddling, that's how the film opens. And <laughs> does it continue like, along those lines? Oh, yes, it only gets more um, vigorous from there. <laughs> and it's in 3D. And it's in 3D. 
Yes. I mean, surely this is what 3D was created for, Gaspar Noé's porn films. That's I think this is... certainly what Noé would claim, I believe. I mean, listen, there is so much sex in this that it quickly becomes quite desensitising. And you're just like, OK, yep, they're at it again. Figures, no big deal. And you start to, I guess, focus on other things, which is part of the point of the film, I think. It's meant to say, you know, sex is a part of a relationship. If you don't show the sex, actually, you're leaving out an essential part of people's relationships, uh, for most people. So there is an honesty there and, and a sort of a, a groundbreaking element, I guess, there. On the other hand, job... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Yeah, thank you. The scenes in between the sex are pretty terrible. The dialogue and the sort of narration are not good I mean they're not and and you know it's all this sort of sophomoric I think life is pain kind of stuff and you're just like oh tit off and stop being so bloody art student about the whole thing they're actually unbearable people and well I say they but really it's only the guy who gets any kind of development he's called Murphy which is an obvious reference to Murphy's law but it's not a case of everything that can go wrong goes wrong he causes everything to go wrong all the way through. Everything that happens is his fault. Everything that goes wrong for him is his fault. So what you're saying is this film is a dating parable. The sex is great, but it all falls mm. apart when he opens his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no. And I mean, the, you know, the women are like supremely sexy, but have no other real defining characteristics. You know, he is a genuinely horrible human being. And, you know, I'm not sure what we're supposed to take from that. I feel like if you're going to make a film about, which you call love and you say is about relationships, then the relationship should be as compelling as the bonking. So really you think it's in the title. So if he'd called it, for example, 3D boobs and spurting, that would have been... That would have been, like, that he would have delivered on. Okay. Like 100%. But as it is, it's a little bit more... Mm. This could have been a very different film, though, because wasn't he originally looking at Monica Bellucci for a role in this? This was actually... He was going to make this before or just after Irreversible. So it was going to be Bellucci and Vincent Cassel, who are, of mm. course, a married couple. Um, and they were hesitant because of one scene involving a particular other party, which I won't spoil for anyone. And and so he kind of put it on the back burner until now. And I th- But I think that, that that is actually a real issue because at the moment... In cinema, the list of people who are willing to have unsimulated sex on camera and the list of people who can act... (laughs) They don't overlap. Don't overlap by much. (laughs) So there is still this... I mean, I think this is, you know, this is a genuine thing that other other filmmakers, you know, Steven Soderbergh and people like that have come up against as well. The, the, The overlap is not a big overlap. So it does somewhat limit what you can do. So you've got something like um, Nymphomaniac where he actually, you know, used body doubles because that's the only way you kind of get around that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's so it's, you know, if you want to see everything in 3D, then this is a film for you. If you maybe want something a little bit cleverer, then it's maybe not. So we gave this three stars. Yep. Three stars plus a bonus star for the 3D boobs. But frankly, <laughs> you're better off just on Pornhub. Uh, yeah? I, I mean, I, I don't know, but sure. Okay. So yeah, so that was that was Gaspar Noé's Love. Also out this week uh, is The Dressmaker, another Liam Hemsworth film. Uh, this one with Kate Winslet. That got three stars. Uh, there's documentary Steve McQueen, The Man and Le Man, which got two. That's Steve McQueen, the actor, not the director, just in case you were worried. Uh, Starman, which got four. And Mr. Calzaghe, which got three. Um, so that's the lineup for this week. Uh, that is also it for this week's podcast. So it's goodbye from Emma. Goodbye. Goodbye from James. Goodbye. And you can join us next week for more film-related fun, where we're, we're going to be joined by a plucky newcomer called Tom Hanks to talk about his bridge of spies, as well as talking about Black Mass, not the satanic kind. We're going to be talking about Carol, not the Christmas kind, and The Good Dinosaur, by which we don't mean Blue from Jurassic World. So it's going to be an exciting week. Please join us then. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to pitch Fast and Furious Beginnings, all about baby Vin Diesel and his tiny micro-machines. Goodbye. <laughs>